your host for Mac in the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. Last week, the WWE held their yearly Royal Rumble. Congrats to Drew McIntyre for winning it, especially considering his past with the company, uh, as well as uh, working all the indies and then coming back and winning one of the biggest events of the year. In honor of that beloved, albeit often poorly booked event, I'll be looking at six films featuring professional wrestlers. We're starting with 1949's Alias the Champ, then following up with 1974's The Wrestler, 1983's My Breakfast with Blassie, 2003's The Rundown, 2006's See No Evil, and the 2014 sequel, See No Evil 2. I want to quickly give a shout out to all the kind folks who gave me a great list of recommendations and spread the word for this episode. Diana Prince, a.k.a. Darcy the Mail Girl, Movie Reviews in 20 Cues, Scout Tafoya, David Kerr, Mark Begley, Samuel Glass Jr., Mark Holubeck, TKG, Space Monkeys, Semper Augustus, James Colbrax at Wrong Reel, Pinland Empire, and William Scurry. I'll definitely have another wrestler-themed episode for the day after WrestleMania. Warning, spoilers aplenty. Now let's get into the movies. We got movies! superstar Gorgeous George. She calls upon Detective Peterson to investigate mobster Al Merlo, who is known for fixing fights. Merlo wants to take over the wrestling bouts in California. Making matters difficult, some of the California wrestlers have already sided with Merlo. George is the lone holdout from Merlo completely taking over. Then George is accused of murder when one of his opponents dies in a match with him. Credit to Republic Pictures for giving us the first feature film to star a prominent professional wrestler all the way back in 1949. Republic were known for doing a lot of low-budget B-pictures, westerns, and serials, but they also helped the likes of John Wayne and Roy Rogers get their acting careers started. Ilias the Champ is an interesting watch because this film was made when wrestling was seen as a legitimate competitive sport. Kayfabe was the word maintaining the impression on audiences that they were watching two men engage in a gladiatorial contest. For a wrestler and promoter to make the most money possible meant getting people emotionally and financially involved with the bouts. For fans of today's wrestling product, the wrestling in this film may be too old for them to care. 
you'll see a lot of headlocks, takedowns, snap mares, drop kicks, flipper punches, and body slams. No 450s, no power bombs, or belly-to-belly suplexes. Another observation, very little in the way of bumps. I'm guessing because the rings back then had little give compared to today's rings, with most of the wrestlers rolling out of moves instead of bumping. The tone is a little uneven at times. You have the seriousness of the main plot regarding Merlo. There's a romance subplot between Lorraine and Peterson. Then, out of nowhere, you have a comedy scene. A fight breaks out when someone insults George's hair, complete with the William Tell overture playing in the background. Not much to say about director George Blair. He worked on a plethora of Republic pictures between the mid-1940s and early 1950s. Writer Albert DeMont had a similar career to Blair. A lot of Republic and serial credits. Seeing Gorgeous George in this film was interesting. I only know George is the guy who lost to Buffalo, New York's own Ilio DiPaolo after an airplane spin. George was an innovator. He was a character before gimmicks were really a thing. I look at George and his antics and appearance and think of a laundry list of talent. Bleach blondes like Classy Freddy Blassie, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, and Nature Boy Ric Flair, Adrian Adonis, Rick the Model Martel, and William Regal. As far as George's acting ability, it's at the same quality as what I've seen on current WWE TV. Today, guys and gals are cutting promos from scripts by writers. This gives such a sense of insincerity and lack of trust in the talent. When George could cut a promo, he was great because he was speaking on his own. Same with greats like Rowdy Roddy Piper, Ted DiBiase, Jake the Snake Roberts. Even Thunderbolt Patterson was trusted to cut his own promo. That gave me the opportunity again to keep my eyeballs on Yoli. You have ruined folks' lives. Not talking about how you dealt with mine in the past, but in the recently. You have been getting on everybody's case. So this Sunday, if you move, if you move, I am going, if you move, this Sunday, it's time to, ooh, I'm so full, I'm full up there here. Same old. But they say it's going to be a change. There will be a change. History has already been made. Call somebody. But when he's speaking dialogue, he comes off his flat and concentrating on remembering his lines. How's the management? Is his gorgeousness receiving? Well, he's... Who is it? It's Lieutenant Peterson, the detective. How are you, George? Nice show tonight. Who's been calling Copper? I have. I talked to him about Merlo. That big windbag, I could bend him in two. Ever try bending a 45? Beat it, Junior. You bore me. Oh, say that for your public. Look, George, you're in a bad spot. Why don't you talk to Lieutenant Peterson and tell him what you know, how Merle is trying to work the racket. Maybe they could stop him or put him in jail. I can't be bothered. Maybe you'd like to be left alone with his clippings. How about you and I? Uh, the Lieutenant wants to take me to supper tonight, George. If he does, I'll have a new manager tomorrow. It's not terrible, but it's not easy to watch either. 
Alias the Champ was one of the early roles for Robert Rockwell, who played Detective Peterson. Rockwell plays Peterson with a cocksure attitude that makes him entertaining. Uh, Rockwell would have a lengthy career in television, including The Lone Ranger. He was uncredited as Jor-El in, George, in the George Reeves Superman TV series. Uh, he was also on Perry Mason, Lassie, Growing Pains, and Beverly Hills 90210. Audrey Long played Lorraine, the manager for Gorgeous George, and the love interest for Peterson. She started in the mid-1940s, but stopped acting in the late 1950s. She worked mostly Republic Pictures. James Nolan as Merlo in Alias the Champ, uh, he was the fight fixer. Nolan, much like Rockwell, had a long TV career. Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Perry Mason, The Twilight Zone are among the highlights of his television credits. I would recommend Alias the Champ because it's a product of its time. This is a time when wrestling was considered a legitimate competitive sport. It may not show the best side of Gorgeous George, but he does his best with the material placed upon him. The rest of the lead cast helps him along. It's very easy to find on YouTube. is trying to keep his head above water while handling his wrestling territory. He tries to keep the seats full for his wrestling cards, all while juggling the obligations to his talent. Bass has an idea for a Super Bowl of wrestling. A WrestleMania, if you will, and he's got the support of the other promoters in the country. His top star, Mike Bullard, is getting up in age and he needs to find a talent that will serve as a worthy successor. Namely, British grappler Billy Taylor. Meanwhile, Bullard is dealing with people telling him to retire, ranging from Bass to his wife. Adding to that pressure is the numerous deaths of wrestlers while in the ring. The Wrestler was a film produced by Vern Gagne, the owner of the AWA promotion based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm sure that title was chosen because calling the film The Promoter wouldn't draw as much attention. Much like Alias the Champ, the film was made to show wrestling as a true competitive sport. There's even a subplot of a racketeer trying to bring gambling into wrestling before he's quickly stopped by Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. The film really shows its age at times, most notably when Ganya as Bullard is introducing rookies. These rookies include The Sheik from Detroit, Bruno Sammartino, Fritz Von Erich, Mad Dog Vachon, and Danny Hodge. There's a scene where Dory Funk Jr. is mentioned as a possible replacement, and Bullard's wife refers to Funk as young. The crowds also show the film as a product of a bygone era. You had people of all ages and races in the audience. Men, women, children, black and white. Something you don't see in today's crowds. It debunks the WWE narrative that wrestling was a sideshow. I'll let Dutch Mantel illustrate how big wrestling was at this time. 
let's say I got, uh, well, we got the cameraman there, and we got you, and we got me, and say we got, you know, gentleman here, gentleman here, whatever. <clears throat> so we all wrestled each other around for six months. And we do tag teams, and we do three ways, and we do this and that, and do all kind of, you know, specialty matches. But after six, eight months, we about worn out everything we can do. You know what the old territories used to do? They say, well, Dutch, why don't you, we'll say we're in Memphis, why don't you go to Charlotte for six months? I've talked to them over there. You go over there, and uh, Sean, you're going to, I'm going to send you to Dallas, okay? And then two guys will replace us. Mm-hmm. Now it has a whole different dynamic. Now the fans say, wow, man, these guys, now this is different, different, different. I go to Charlotte, you go to Texas, we all make money, and then about six to nine months, we come back. Or you come over and, to Texas after I got a program started. And that's how he yeah. used to work. Wahoo McDaniel and Johnny Valentine used to follow each other around, territory to territory to territory, and they made business for 10 years. And today, now, you've only got one big one and kind of another big one, but nowhere to go. <laughs> Well, in my book, The World According to Dutch, available on Amazon.com, when I broke into the business, not one territory, not two companies, or we call them territories, or not three promotions, 32 different promotions that you could work for. If you got into the business and you were just halfway proficient at, at, at professional wrestling, if you just... If you just weren't totally inept, you had a career. I mean, you couldn't make all the companies, even if you spent a year in each one, because if you started when you was 20, you couldn't make all of them. You'd be 52, you're time to quit. You know what I mean? film isn't afraid to have the plots come to a screeching halt in favor of random bouts, comedy bits, promos, and wrestling history. This tonal inconsistency will throw a lot of people off, but I think that adds to the charm of the film. You've got superstar Billy Graham in his prime on the mic. There's a funny bar brawl with Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch. In one drawn-out sequence, Bowler gives a lesson to trainees on the history of wrestling and giving tips on how to properly execute moves. While some may lose their patience, I found these knowledge drops to be informative. James A. Westman's only directorial effort was The Wrestler. Uh, He's better known for his work as a production manager, Uh, Notably, The Fan with Wesley Snipes and Robert De Niro, Smokey and the Bandit, as well as uh, for television, Charlie's Angels and Magnum P.I. Ed Asner plays Frank Bass. He has a schlubbiness to him that makes him believable in the role. He comes off as blue collar in a high profile business. Asner has a legendary career ranging from television to film to video games. Vern Gagne plays Bullard, the aging wrestler that's the main star of Bass's promotion. Gagne plays Bullard in a heelish manner. He fakes injuries, goes to business for himself in matches, and steals credit when Bass announces the match between Bullard and Taylor. There's no shortage of wrestling talent in this film. British grappler Billy Robinson played Bill Taylor. You also have Nick Bockwinkle, Wahoo McDaniel, Jim Brunzel, Mike Graham, and Larry the Axe Henning. If you're a student of wrestling history, the wrestler has a lot to offer. You might be bored by the main plot of Bass and Bullard, but there's still much to keep you entertained. The full movie can be found on YouTube. I was on my way to have breakfast with an old friend I hadn't seen for years, Freddie Blassie, the self-proclaimed king of men. The reason I was having breakfast with Blassie in the first place was because a friend of mine, Jeff Walton, the promoter, 
had been down in the locker room of the Olympic Auditorium last week interviewing wrestlers. He happened to notice one extremely large man leaning against the wall, laughing hysterically with tears in his eyes. Jeff suddenly realized that the man was Freddie Blassie and invited him out for a beer. Fred explained that he had been watching the David Letterman show and had just seen me get slapped in the floor by Southern Heavyweight Champion Jerry Lawler, the man who put me in this neck brace. Jeff then mentioned that he was also a friend of mine and that Fred and I should get together since we were both in town. And that's how this breakfast was arranged. My Breakfast with Blassie centers on a restaurant set conversation between comedian, intergender wrestling champion Andy Kaufman and wrestler manager Classy Freddie Blassie. This is in the midst of the mainstream angle between Kaufman and legendary Memphis wrestler Jerry the King Lawler. More specifically, this was not long after the infamous appearance of the two on David Letterman. Let me let me just clear up one point here. There are a lot of people watching who probably view wrestling as being uh, a show, a display, a demonstration, and and this may be as the pinnacle uh, representation of that. It was this thing fixed or rigged? Are you guys really friends? Is it was it no, a scam? No, not at all. I, I, I couldn't warm up to this guy. We were cremated together. <laughs> he is a wimp. That's exactly what he thought. He thought that's what he thought about wrestling. He thinks it's all a big joke, a big fix, or whatever. And and then uh, you're right. There are a lot of so people that think that. You're nothing but a well, redneck. well, there's you're just trying to prove a point because I was a Yankee and I heard this from so many people in Memphis. I was going down there and because there you believed all that stuff. Like that I was there are a lot of people that think that. David. And he was one of them. Mm-hmm. And I did to Andy and exactly what I would like to do to everybody that thinks that. You're lucky I didn't. It was a chance to show him exactly what it's really like. If there were, would you? Because let me tell you something. My father said, my father said, my manager said, they all said that I had a right, I could have gotten a lawyer and I could have sued you for what you did and I didn't. And I just, all I want is an apology. Even you asked me last time I was on your show if I, if I was going to have a lawsuit and I could have sued you. I could have sued you for everything you're worth. And I didn't because I'm not that kind of a guy. Yeah. You know what? uh, What kind of a guy are you? They cover a wide range of subject matter, as well as deal with some of the customers at nearby tables, as well as Kaufman's partner in crime, Bob Zamuda. Much like with Alias the Champ and the Wrestler, kayfabe is maintained, and to see it put into action with the restaurant setting was quite a sight to behold. This meant that the bad guys had to still be bad guys, even when ordering at a restaurant. Uh, Here's the honky-tonk man in a shoot interview uh, sharing his thoughts on being a heel in a place where food is served. Years ago, yes, they wanted you to, even if you went into the restaurant, you had to be mean and hateful to the... Why would you want to do that? Be mean and hateful to the person serving you when you know they probably go back to the back and, you know... Kaufman was still selling the neck injury from the pilot driver given to him by Waller. Interesting from a wrestling history perspective, you have two performers from two different territories in conversation. I believe at this time, Blassie was with the New York-based WWF, while Coffin was in the Memphis territory owned by Jerry Jarrett. Most of the time, the territories kept to themselves, rarely publicly addressing each other. Blassie is really playing up the heel nature. He insults the pregnant waitress, taking a welfare jab at her, one of the ladies asked him for an autograph, which was a no-no for heels. A positive interactions with fans at the time was not for the bad guys. We learn a lot about Blassie. There's the story of how he got over in Japan back in 1962. My first tour over there was 1962. 
and uh, that was right. Uh, I was recognized the world's heavyweight wrestling champion in the WWA. Before I went over there, there was a wrestler, Mike Sharp. He said, Blassie, he said, what are you going to do when you get over there? He says, you can't speak Japanese. They can't understand English. I said, I'll do something. I'll come up with something. And uh, I have my front teeth capped. So I'm window shopping. I love the window shop. I can spend three hours in a hardware store picking up all things, looking at them, putting them down. And it's the same way in an automobile accessory place. I can spend... Uh, like I say, three, four hours with ease. So I happened to see a file laying there, and I went in and I said, I'll buy the file. So he wrapped it up for me, and he took it out. And I saw Mike, I said, this thing here, I said, will make the people recognize me. I don't have to speak Japanese. My work, my wrestling, plus color that I have and everything, I guarantee you, they'll never forget Blassie. So we got off the plane, landed in Japan, when we did, I started filing my teeth. Well, they just went ape. There's his long list of injuries. Because, uh, as you well know, that uh, I've suffered numerous injuries in my profession. That's as far as I can extend both arms. Really? Yeah. Oh, gosh. You won't go down no further than that, both of them. Why? They've been busted so often. Six knee operations, four on the right, two on the left. Seventh and eleventh vertebrae are fused together, every rib on the right side, five on the left. Neck has also been broken. Fractured skull, brain cushion twice. Nose broken seven times, every finger on the right side. So, I mean, uh, I just, the list is endless. There's humor in Blassie not shaking hands with fans because he doesn't know where their hands have been, uh, much like the soap promo cut by Kaufman on Memphis Wrestling. Blassie tells a great story of how he had a close call with the KKK in Mobile, Alabama. He even has a tender moment with Kaufman, encouraging him to continue wrestling despite being pulverized by Lawler. The one problem I have with the film was Bob Zamuda. The scenario was fine enough just with Kaufman and Blassie, but Zamuda added some unneeded gross-out humor. He pulls paper out of his nose, he vomits on the table Kaufman and Blassie are eating at, he feels out of place and is the biggest flaw with an otherwise interesting film. If there was one film I would urge the listener to check out in this episode, it would be My Breakfast with Blassie. You have two very entertaining people having an engaging conversation yet a conversation mildly ruined by Kaufman's partner, Zamuda. This one you can find on YouTube in parts, as well as on Amazon Prime Video and Fandor. to quit that line of work under Billy Walker and become a restaurateur. He is given an assignment. Go to Brazil and bring back Walker's son, Travis. Walker will repay him with enough money to open a restaurant. 
Beck goes to Brazil and is caught in a power struggle between Cornelius Hatcher, a mining baron, and local rebels. Hatcher is searching for a golden idol. With the help of Travis and Mariana, the rebel leader, they aim to get the idol and take down Hatcher. When seeing the rundown, I was not aware that this was a WWE film. I thought this was a typical studio movie. As far as WWE films go, this may be one of their better efforts. It qualifies as a cult classic since it bombed at the box office, but has had a positive reception from both critics and fans. This film helped cement the acting career of The Rock and allowed for future WWE films, for better or worse. As far as buddy films go, this is run-of-the-mill. We've seen better with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, but the duo of Dwayne Johnson and Sean William Scott are entertaining. Rundown was the second feature film for actor-turned-director Peter Berg. Wes Craven's Shocker, Fire in the Sky, Copland, and Smoking Aces are among some of his acting credits. But Berg has managed to pull out some great films in his own right. Friday Night Lights, Lone Survivor, and Deepwater Horizon are solid movies. As mentioned earlier, the rundown was the film that allowed Dwayne Johnson to have an acting career. After this film, he was in Be Cool, Get Smart, he would become a major part of the Fast and Furious series, there was Moana, now he's even producing films. Shazam for the DCEU, Fighting With My Family, the recent Jumanji films, and is supposedly producing the Big Trouble in Little China requel. Sean William Scott shows some growth in this film. He came a long way from his insufferable turn as Stifler in the American Pie films. Final Destination, Bulletproof Monk, have him toning down the obnoxiousness. Heck, if it wasn't for Ryan Reynolds, Scott would have been my choice to play Deadpool. The lovely Rosario Dawson is always a welcome addition to any cast. She shows strength as Mariana. Uh, The Netflix Marvel programs, Sin City, Death Proof. She's been the voice of Barbara Gordon and Wonder Woman. She is one of the genre queens we have today. By this time in 2003, Christopher Walken had far become a parody of himself. It was after 1997's Mouse Hunt that he went into the comedic route after great serious performances in The Deer Hunter, Dead Zone, At Close Range, and King of New York. Yet, I can't deny the humor of Walken as as Hatcher uh, talking to the natives about the Tooth Fairy. There are two men in that jungle who are trying to steal from me. I feel like a little boy who's lost his first tooth, put it under his pillow waiting for the tooth fairy to come. Only two evil burglars have crept in my window and snatched it before she could get here. Okay, a fato, dos... Wait a second. Do you understand the concept of the tooth fairy? I follow those dentures, he jolt us. Was I per you on dente? Ah, point the bacho. Almo father. Ah, a father. Wait, throw. She takes the goddamn thing, gives you a quarter. They got my tooth. I want it back. In support performances, you have some wonderful characters. Ewan Bender plays a pilot who is recognizable from Train Spotting and Wonder Woman. John Grease plays a henchman for Hatcher. Grease was the Wolfman in Monster Squad, Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, 
as well as in the Taken trilogy. Ernie Reyes Jr. plays the brother of Mariana, but he's been in cult classics like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, Surf Ninjas, and Red Sonja. Rundown is a fun movie more than it has any right to be. Dwayne Johnson and Sean William Scott have great chemistry. Walken is having fun as the villain. Uh, great supporting cast. Uh, well worth a watch. are responding to a disturbance call at a neighborhood residence. Inside, they find a woman with no eyes and are suddenly attacked by Jacob Goodnight. One cop is killed while the other, Frank Williams, has one of his arms cut off. Williams gets a shot on Goodnight before he escapes. Four years later, Williams is overseeing a program for rehabilitation to help reduce sentences. A small group of prisoners are being taken to the Blackwell Hotel. There, they'll be cleaning the place to prep it for its new use as a homeless shelter. Shortly after they arrive, things turn south. Two of the prisoners, Michael and Kira, have bad history. Drugs are snuck in. There's also rumored wealth hidden in a safe on the grounds of the hotel. Then, Jacob Goodnight appears and starts taking everyone out. This is the kind of film I would have expected WWE to make on a regular basis. You know, take they go ahead and take guys like John Cena, Randy Orton, and The Miz into cheap action movies. Yet, characters like The Undertaker, The Wyatt Family, Broken Matt Hardy, Insanity, and Aleister Black scream horror movie material. With Ceno Evil, they finally did, and with Kane. This first Ceno Evil, more than the second one, is on the over-the-top side. There were some amusing kills in the film. Uh, the cell phone one jamming down Zoe's throat immediately comes to mind. Uh, another one involved a fire hose that ended on a note that I did not see coming. I had a few problems with the film. They killed off Frank Williams way too early. They could have made him the Sam Loomis to Goodnight's Michael Myers. They could have turned Williams into an obsessed investigator once he realized Goodnight was still alive. Another issue is the character of Michael. He becomes a hero when Goodnight starts killing people. Uh, This is somehow supposed to atone in how he treated Kira in the past. He mistreats a dog during downtime, which should immediately disqualify him from any redemption. He's a scummy character we're stuck with because any of the decent characters are quickly killed off. See No Evil was under the direction of Gregory Dark, He got his start in pornography with the New Wave Hookers and the Devil and Miss Jones series. Then he landed uh, music video gigs with Britney Spears, Mandy Moore, Bone Thugs and Harmony, Linkin Park, and Counting Crows. See No Evil and Little Fish, Strange Pond mark his two directorial efforts outside of porn. Glenn Jacobs is fine as Jacob Goodnight. Uh, Too bad this is Kane without a mask. Let's be honest. Kane was much scarier when he had the mask. 
didn't speak, and had the Michael Myers body language to communicate with audiences. For a man his size, Goodnight can be quick and agile. Uh, The only other actor of note in the film is Rachel Taylor, who plays Zoe. Uh, Not a stranger to Marvel film and TV properties, she appeared in the Man-Thing horror movie. Then she really became well-known to everybody after she starred in the Netflix Marvel shows, notably Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. See No Evil is an okay slasher film. Uh, Decent kills, an interesting villain, and plenty of victims for a sizable body count make for fair horror efforts. Good for a rainy day viewing. set at the morgue that is taking in the bodies from the Blackwell Hotel massacre. Amy is about to leave when the call comes in and she decides to stay to help process the bodies. Amy, Seth, and Holden are ready for a busy night. While going through the facility, Amy is surprised by her friends. They snuck in to celebrate Amy's birthday. During the festivities, a couple sneak away and stumble across the body of Jacob Knight. They start to have sex on the table next to him. Before they realize it, Jacob's body has disappeared. Somehow, Jacob has come back to life to attack everyone at the morgue. And this is your setup for the sequel, See No Evil 2. Simple, but this one struck me as less effective than the previous film. It's Halloween 2 compared to See No Evil as the original Halloween. Where the violence was hyper-realistic, this one was more direct and uninventive. You get simple slashes and stabs, while in the previous film, there was some time building up to the kill. There's not much else to say compared to the other films on this episode. I couldn't help but feel like I was watching a live-action Dead by Daylight round. Jacob Goodnight in this film has a passing resemblance to the Trapper. Here comes the Trapper, you better watch out for his traps. Here comes the Trapper, don't step into his traps. Do, do step in. What else rhymes with traps? Maps, hubcaps, ginger snaps. Oh, now I'm hungry. Oh, right. Here comes the Trapper, you better watch out for his traps. Here comes the trapper, you better eat some ginger snaps. The trapper! Jazz, jazz hands. You have four main survivors representing a different trope. All I was waiting for was for them to genrush the killer. The Soska sisters handled directorial de- uh, duties this time around. They're no stranger to horror. Um, notably, they directed CM Punk in a remake of the David Cronenberg classic, Rabid. Glenn Jacobs, a.k.a. Kane, returns as Goodnight. Apparently, Goodnight went through an evolution, a mystery, a full-on change that no one sees. Give yourself an ice cream bar if you get that reference. Uh, this time, Goodnight can talk, which kind of ruins the mystique of the character. 
Danielle Harris plays Amy. Harris would be familiar to fans of Halloween 4 and 5, as well as the Rob Zombie Halloween remakes. She plays the role of the horror heroine just fine. Uh, There's more to her career than horror. Uh, There's comedies like Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter is Dead and City Slickers uh, that are tip of the iceberg of her credits. Catherine Isabel plays Tamara, the sex-hungry Jezebel that is partially responsible for bringing Jacob Goodnight back from the dead. She's had a lot of TV work before her breakthrough turn as Ginger in the menstrual-related werewolf horror film Ginger Snaps. You can also see her in the Monster Mash clash of Freddy vs. Jason. Michael Eklund makes a reappearance on Mac in the Movies. We saw Eklund in a few films for the Stone Cold Steve Austin episode. That would be episode 10. Here he plays Holden, the manager of the morgue. Contrary to previous performances I've seen of him, here he's actually sympathetic. See No Evil 2 is a letdown of sorts. It doesn't reach the mediocre heights of the previous film, but it does sport a better-known cast of genre actors. I just barely recommend it if you're a diehard horror fan. And that finishes this episode of Mac in the Movies. Next time, we'll be taking a look at comic book movies, uh, because they're all the rage for the last 30-plus years. But we'll be looking at comic book movies that are not based on either DC or Marvel. Non-mainstream comic book movies, uh, I guess we can call it that. Uh, What films could they be? Find out on Monday, February 10th. If you enjoyed this content and would like to see the program grow, a one-time donation via PayPal would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Any questions or inquiries can be sent to my Gmail. All of that in the description below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Mac and the Movies. Take care, folks. Fuck you, bye, boom!